Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is called Developing Selfhood. This episode was originally produced and published by Christy Crow Hughes. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so um, just before we begin, I wanted to give kind of a backdrop to our conversation Um, Because we're going to be talking about developing selfhood. And Carol Gilligan, she's a stage theorist on moral development. Um, She has written a lot on this topic. And so I just kind of wanted to give a brief introduction on who she is and her theories and maybe how we'll kind of bring that all together tonight. So um, Gilligan is a feminist researcher and theorist who has colleagues with two of the most well-known moral development theorists of the 20th century, Erickson and Kohlberg. Now, working alongside these men, she observed that most women were labeled inferior in their moral development, according to this Kohlberg model. Now, that shouldn't have been too much of a surprise since the subjects that were being studied were primarily white men and boys. So Gilligan began conducting experiments of her own and developed a theory that women have a different developmental stage process, which she categorized into three stages. So first, women begin in a begin life in a pre-conventional stage where they center on the need to survive, and this makes them selfish. From there, they transition into a conventional stage where they orient themselves in relation to their responsibility to others. And this stage is identified primarily as a selfless stage, which is also defined by being good. But Gilligan says that some, not all women, will transition into a third, higher stage of moral development called the post-conventional stage. And this stage allows women to take responsibility to care for others, but also includes the responsibility to care for the needs of the self. So in this stage, women finally begin to see that they have obligations to themselves and not just others. Now, you should know that Gilligan's research is controversial in the feminist community because some assert that her theories enforce gender essentialism, but I think that's a little bit reductive, especially when you consider that her uh, psychological conversation, at least the one that she entered at this time, was unbelievably sexist. So regardless, Gilligan's theories made a tremendous impact on the ways we define moral development, and, and until she entered that conversation, the voices and experiences of women were literally non-existent and not validated on any level. So tonight we're going to be talking primarily about transitioning from the conventional to the post-conventional stage. And I think the easiest way to describe this backdrop um, is, or this transition, is that it gives women an opportunity to renegotiate relationships in a way that allows them to be part of the community as well as belong to themselves. But this model is certainly not perfect. And so if you don't relate to it, uh, know that there are other ways to define moral development. This relationship approach is just one way. So with that really long introduction, uh, Dr. Finlayson Fife, can you begin by talking about selfhood and why you feel it's important for moral development? Sure. So <clears throat> I think, you know, to the point that you're talking about, you know, when, as Kohlberg and Gilligan both talk about in the kind of pre-conventional stage, you and even into the conventional stage, you very much are functioning from a reflected sense of self, Mm -hmm. that your selfhood is a borrowed selfhood, and you're trying to, um, in many ways, your morality is based on both selfish things in the early stages, but then trying to be what others want you to be is more in the conventional stage. 
in Gilligan's model. And if we think of the development of selfhood in terms of what I would call a solid sense of self or the post-conventional stage, that's basically when you have the capacity within yourself to, to make moral judgments and to discern and act according to your values, um, to basically make a difference in the world based on what you believe is best or most correct or most right. And it's not being framed primarily from getting the approvals of, of others or getting other people to think that you're okay. It's, it's wiser than that. It's less dependent on other people's validation than that. It's really coming from your own earned wisdom through being and engaging in a social environment. And so selfhood in this sense, you know, developing a solid self is really that capacity to know the difference between what you believe is right and wrong in any context and to assert what you believe is most right. And that takes hard-earned wisdom and an internal moral compass. So, um, yeah, so it's really what allows you to be a force for good in the world. Okay. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, I just wonder what sort of obstacles do you see in our culture that kind of inhibit women from developing this solid sense of self as you describe it? So I think, you know, that while that's really normal, especially in those earlier stages to be, to want the approval of others, for women, it's especially challenging because women get enculturated into a narrative of selflessness that basically the way that one is a good woman is to forsake her desires. And we get this with both barrels in the church, um, that femininity and womanhood is defined by our desire to forsake um, our interests for the interests of others around us, and that that's what makes us good. And so basically, you know, all of us, you know, the way I think, think the theory that I use a lot in my work is that we humans have two desires at all times. <laughs> that is that we want to belong to others. We want to be a fundamental part of our community. And we also want to belong to ourselves. That is to say, we want to develop ourselves, that we want to fulfill the measure of our creation, to um, be true to the things that really matter to us and to develop ourselves. And for women, we have basically said that that autonomous part is a problem, that if we're going to really be good, we'll really encourage the dependency side of human experience. And so I think that perhaps what was being tracked in Kohlberg's studies was that women were getting caught in the moral reasoning around seeking other people's validation because when you forsake your development, you will become more dependent on other people's validation to help you justify that lack of development. And so not to mention that you're also being told that other people's approval is very important. So uh, that is one of the ways that our ch uh, church subculture and the culture at large encourages that part of women. Okay, now why, I mean, you've talked a little bit about why you see this as a problem, but, I mean, growing up, I've always heard, you know, we want to be Christ-like. That's kind of the term, especially that's given to women. We want to be Christ-like. We want to, um, you know, sometimes even submit. 
uh, to, you know, the father kind of idea. And so sometimes women are kind of placed into that um, role or category. And so, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that's sort of viewed as something, like you mentioned, is goodness. So why should we want for something more than that? Because in a way, it's like, in some ways we could be saying, I want to be better than Christ, right? Because that's Christ-like. Well, I would say that, you know, and, you know, I will basically articulate this through the interview, is that often it really is the right thing to forsake what you want for the good of some, for a higher good, for a higher aim, for something that matters to the well-being and the well-functioning of the group. Um, And that is very important. But that's different than feeling like I need to... Um, systematically or automatically let go of my desires in order to have the approval and validation of the group. That I can't be seen as somebody who has desires or I'm not considered legitimate. Mm -hmm. So it's more like, it's not, you know, what I think it is to, um, moral development is to basically take responsibility for your desires Mm -hmm. and to use and to let your desires inform your engagement in the world in responsible and ethical ways, but not the denial of desires. I have never yet met a person who doesn't have desires. The issue is how you relate to your desires. Okay. Um, I totally resonate with something that Gilligan said in her book, and she says that women fear abandonment and disconnection so deeply that sometimes they will silence themselves just to keep the peace. And, um, and I'm wondering if you've seen this at all in your practice, can you share some examples about how you've seen this work or maybe I'm just nutty. I'm the only one that's done this. (laughs) No, I absolutely see lots of people who do this. I mean, men and women both will do this where they will silence what they want in order to lower conflict or to not risk the fear of another person's invalidation. Um, and so that's a very typical thing. I see it all the time. Um, but usually, you know, it's costly to people because I'm, um, I'm just forgetting your question. Are you asking me if I see it happening and then if it's a problem? I didn't, I don't remember what the full question was. Oh, of course. So have you seen it in, in your practice and can you share an example of maybe how that plays out? Sure. So I definitely see it in my practice and here's an example where, you know, I have a client who they have a very conflict avoidant marriage and I think to most people who know them, they're kind of the pillars of the community. They're always nice. They do a lot of service in the church, but it's, it's very much a marriage that's devoid of intimacy in every sense. And that is to say that she has seen him as sort of the more righteous one, the stronger one, the breadwinner. And so even though she has wanted things that he has not either known about or done anything about, even though she wants those things, she has tended to silence them because she's afraid that he will think they're illegitimate, you know, they're not important enough or they're selfish, or that he won't care enough about her or her desires to do anything about them. And so what she has tended to do is just silence how she feels, doubt herself, but often also resent that her desires take the back seat so often and that she 
resents him for the fact that she keeps accommodating what he wants and silencing her own desires. And so while it looks quite seamless on the outside, there's a lot of turmoil under the surface in the relationship and a real lack of intimacy because she hasn't shown up to the relationship much. Okay, so on the one hand, maybe she's hiding behind this idea of being Christ-like, but inside she's raging. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Okay. Exactly right. So she takes security or safety in this idea or guilts herself into a certain kind of silence that maybe it's selfish of her to want these things, but she can't actually sustain that position because she ends up feeling so resentful for the fact that her wishes get, you know, shoved down relative to his. And she doesn't actually feel like it's a good thing or the right thing, but she's afraid to actually stand up for it. Okay. And the narrative of selflessness, you know, basically becomes the way to feel good while you're not actually doing good. And to feel like you are good when you're not actually doing good. Okay. So do you think it would be helpful to kind of reframe our ideas of maybe what it is to be Christ-like? Because I feel like the two are maybe being lumped together inappropriately. Yeah, they absolutely are, in my opinion. Um, I feel like, you know, Christ, what we talk about often as being Christ-like is more of a kind of martyr frame where you just, without thinking, will just forsake your desires and that somehow letting go of any desires is somehow inherently good where, you know, when you really think about Christ, Christ went around standing up for what he believed was right in complex situations, right? And not having everybody be happy with him. I mean, what I think we often call Christ-like is just do what everybody wants you to do and keep the peace as opposed to take a stand for what really is the most right thing for the group, yourself included. And if you're really going to take a stand for what you believe the most right thing is, it's going to mean that there will be conflict at times. It's going to mean you will get invalidation at times. right? It will mean uh, that people will be unhappy with you, just as they were with Christ. <laughs> you know, Christ, if you went around looking for people's validation, Christ would never have gotten crucified. <laughs> it's because Christ said things that pressured the development of the group and that were hard for people to take at times. So I think being Christ-like is much harder than just instinctively and reactively subverting your desires. Yeah, and one of the things that I feel like I actually really admire about Christ is that I do feel like he models this sort of relationship morality where he takes situations and people and again relationships into account as he makes moral decisions and so right so in one ways i do like him in that sort of example but like you said there's some problems in the way that we define it right okay so um so another uh component to this discussion i guess is that you know in our culture we have kind of this i mean even though we might be able to intellectually say, I don't need to be selfless. Um, There is sort of that nagging thing of what if my neighbor calls me selfish for doing this, that, or the other. And I think a lot of us women, particularly in the church, have experienced that where if you're not happy, you know, having this maybe normal Mormon life that 
that there's something wrong with you and that maybe you're, you are selfish and why can't you just get with the program and whatnot. So how do we kind of face that courageously without it kind of caving in on ourselves? Because I think that a lot of women experience that we don't want to be seen as self selfish. Right. So what I would say is that paradoxically, the fear of being seen as selfish is very selfish. (laughs) And that is to say that if you're preoccupied with how people view you, it is a self preoccupation. It is about being the need to be seen as good rather than being anxiously engaged in being good. And being good is not just doing what other people want. Relationships always pressure us. It's an inherent element of relationships that as soon as you are in connection with others, they are going to want things that are different from you want, uh, from what you want. And that's just part of the fabric of relationships. There's nothing problematic about it. People will always want things from you, but you have to be the architect of your own existence. That's your moral obligation. And how you, what you create in response to those varying pressures, the pressures of the people that you care about and, and the pressures of within yourself around what matters to you, how you respond and assert what you think is best or most important is part of being a moral being. It's, it's, it's fundamental to being a moral human being. And so if we're so preoccupied with someone else thinking we're selfish, I would say that our focus is in the wrong place. Our focus is on what someone else thinks rather than whether or not we are being selfish. Right? So the, the, the real issue is, okay, somebody may think I'm being selfish because I've decided to not invite the missionaries for dinner this month because I you know, think there are other priorities in our family that matter more. And I felt so embarrassed when I had to pass the clipboard. <laughs> and I swear sister so-and-so was noticing me. <laughs> and the question is whether or not we're going to let, you know, somebody else's perceived judgment become more important than how we're going to use our energies and our finite resources um, towards the commitments that we've made and the people that we're in relationship with. Anything you say yes to, you say no to something else. And you have to discriminate what's the best way to use that energy and those resources. And it isn't always doing what everybody thinks you ought to be doing, right? As Christ modeled, it does include self-care. It includes doing what's good for you. It includes doing what is good for others. It sometimes means saying no to others. It sometimes means saying no to yourself, meaning no to the sort of thing you want more immediately relative to the higher goal that matters more to you. So, um, I think how we're seen is something that is, it, it actually is a self betrayal of sorts for us as women that we want so much to be seen as nice and good and accommodating and sweet that we will betray our own development and our own judgment of what is real goodness in the face of complex realities. That's awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's awesome. Um, okay. So sometimes, and again, I'm outing myself here, but I think that we hide behind that sort of mask of selflessness or, um, under, underdeveloped selfhood in ways that actually enable us to celebrate our immaturity and demand others to take care of us. And, um, Gilligan actually talks about that a little bit in her book. 
But um, why do we go there and what does it accomplish? Well, something that I think the feminist narrative hasn't spoken about as much um, is that there's a real upside to dependency. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, there's a real downside to it, of course, especially if your husband's cheating on you and leaves you and you have no economic power and so on. But the upside of dependency is that you can basically hold other people responsible for your happiness, for your lack of development. You can make others responsible for your choices in life. Um, if you're constantly accommodating other people's desires, you can you can basically say, well, they made me do it. You know, their desires pressured me, and therefore I had to do this thing, and therefore I don't have to actually do the harder work of discerning what's really right in this situation, or the harder work of tolerating someone's disapproval while I do what I think is actually better, right? Mm -hmm. And many of us don't want that. We'd rather resent the pressures that are put on us or we'd rather obligate the people we're in relationship with. Okay, I forsook my my PhD and I didn't, you know, have a career and I, I you know, I basically gave birth to you and, you know, cleaned your nose and blah, 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 and you know, and you have the you, know, you dare to not go on a mission. <laughs> you know, like you know, like what I'm saying is that sometimes if you basically turn your development over to other people, then you feel the right to sort of be resentful or obligate them to make you proud or to make or to give you a life essentially and you can wrap it all up as goodness if you'll let yourself get away with it in that kind of martyr framework but it's really about a betrayal of your responsibility not an, not an embracing of it right um yeah that's it's very true um so as far as I'm just wondering when we look at that and we see women engage in that sort of self betrayal, um, it seems almost like a cruel setup. I mean, because it seems like eventually it will backfire. I mean, how long can you really give yourself to somebody else and have them take care of it? I mean, do you feel like that's an accurate statement as far as you're kind of holding a ticking time bomb? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yes, yes, you are. I mean, if you really are going to kind of give that responsibility over to someone else, like resentment is just a really big red flag. Resentment is the marker that you are basically making choices and holding other people responsible for your choices. I had a male client come in today who wants to leave his wife, and he's saying, you know, she made us move to this city. She made us do this, you know, she, and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did she make you do that? <laughs> you know, how, and, and he's, you know, prides himself in this sort of heroic. I just have been like this good guy for her. I do everything she wants. And I'm not saying, I don't, I don't see how that's good. I mean, you're saying you didn't think it was the right choice to move to the city, but you did it anyway. How is that good? Right? Because, what he wanted to do was be seen as the selfless, heroic, good one who's taking care of his needy wife, and but resenting her the whole way. And the, the time bomb has gone off, <laughs> and he's now, you know, looking at a, someone he works with in the office and thinking she looks a lot, she's a lot more validating of him and a lot more, thinks he's much more heroic than his wife does, because his wife's more in the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately position. <laughs> and so, yeah, these things, they're... This is why I talk about in my classes and stuff that marriage is a divine institution in the sense that 
these immaturities that we bring to our relationships get pressured in the context of marriage. Marriages, you know, you may go in in a heroic stance or I'm going to be the wife that just kind of is just everything you want me to be. And it maybe works for a little while, but very soon you start feeling like you're disappearing, like you're being taken advantage of, like that you aren't really respected in the relationship, that he actually respects his colleagues more than you. And it, and it starts to go into crisis. And the issue in marriage is whether or not people will actually acknowledge that their way of engaging in their relationship and with themselves is flawed and is time-limited and whether or not they're willing to sort of engage in a deeper level of their own development and take more responsibility for themselves. That's really the crux of my work as a therapist. Okay. And it kind of seems like what you're saying is that when we put off decisions and give them to other people, that in a way we're kind of using them. Absolutely we are. So. Absolutely we are. And, and, and the crazy thing is we like to call that selfless. <laughs> and it's very selfish paradoxically. When, when Christ says to forget ourselves, I really believe what he's saying is absolutely right. But that's not the same thing of, of submerging our desires and then resenting other people for that, that act. It's about a wise responsibility in the context of our desires to decide what we believe is the higher, the higher desire. You know, I want to get on Facebook and read all these posts, but I also want to not neglect my child and to make her know that she matters, okay? I want both things, okay? What, am I gonna go with the higher desire or the lower desire, okay? That, it's whether or not you're gonna take, you don't resent your child when you get off of Facebook and you go and attend to her, because then you're not taking responsibility for your desires. It's about saying, look, I choose the greater good here. And it's my, it's my choice. It's, it's self-definite. That is a part of selfhood. That's a part of self-definition in the world is this is the kind of mother I choose to be. And it sounds like then the validation starts to come from within because you're asserting that choice. And, and and that's really powerful actually to feel like you made a choice and that you can own it. Whereas giving it to someone else is much easier, so much easier. That's right. And it, and it forges self-respect. I'm being the kind of mother that I respect, that I value, that I can look at my choices and feel good about my choices, you know, on on the whole, not that we don't all make imperfect choices at times, but that I respect because I'm fulfilling, I'm, I'm lining my behavior up with my own values. And that internal anchor and being true to it is really about developing strength. That's really how we become more solid as in our sense of self and solid as, um, moral agents. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think another piece to this, um, and Gilligan talks about this as well, as she says that, um, women struggle with this healthy selfhood in part because they really see the value and importance of relationships and even democracy. And, and she kind of argues more so than men, but you know, that can be debated. Um, so, but her kind of argument is that women enter a conversation and that their kind of main desire is to figure out a way to maintain the connection and not cause harm, which, you know, I think is a great desire, but sometimes that can backfire because Uh like you're saying, if we're, um, trying to accommodate everybody else, but silencing our own voice, that ends up being a problem. So, 
So how do we take that value and prevent it from becoming toxic or undermining to our selfhood? So again, you know, I think just as I'm saying, you know, that all human beings have to navigate this tension between their autonomy and their dependency needs, or in other words, belonging to themselves and belonging to others. Similarly, in any functional and healthy society, there's a balance between love and work, or that is to say, like, there's a balance between sort of our economic um, efforts as well as the needs of the group of attending to societal, societal and familial needs. And we have traditionally split those needs. We've given men the economic uh, roles, and we've given women the nurturing roles, and the real, and, and then because of a patriarchal system, the men's roles have tend, and men's values have tended to, to be given superior position to the nurturing and caring part of society. And in some ways, I think early feminism was to sort of overvalue the male side of it and to not also acknowledge the fundamental aspect of society that also includes nurturing. You know, stay-at-home mothers, people that are that are investing in the framework of society through their, you know, volunteering and, and public, um, you know, contributions is it's a huge part of societal well-being. So to the degree that women are speaking to this element, right, it's an incredibly important part of any moral and social narrative and should not in any way be devalued. When Carol Gilligan, I, I don't, I can't quote exactly what you just said. If she's saying if if this fear of disconnection drives the decisions, I would say that's very different than a desire to not cause harm or or a desire to do good in the group as a whole. That's a that's different. So I don't know how she would think about that. If the fear of disconnection is what's driving it, I would say that's a lower level of moral thinking because it's more around I. I need to belong, and I'm going to trump that over my own, you know, need to belong to myself. And it's, again, more selfishly driven. If it's really about, I care about the well-being of the group, I would say, even in Kohlberg's thinking, and I mean, I'm not a specialist in either Gilligan or Kohlberg, other than a kind of basic understanding of these theories, but I think even in Kohlberg's thinking, I mean, Kohlberg really... Um, hyper-focused on justice, where I think both fairness and care are, are fundamental to society. But ultimately, I think high moral development has to be about what is good for society, what is good for me, and what is good for society. And the more developed you are, the more that those two function together. That I... that that my sense of morality, doing the right thing for my daughter is to also do the right thing for myself because it's in line with what I believe is right. So I, I'm now forgetting specific, <laughs> what you specifically asked me in the question. Do you, do you want to reiterate it? Oh, well, sure. I think, I think what Gilligan was sort of getting at, and you've definitely spoken to this, but that you know, men, when they, it's like you get a man and a woman together. And again, I'm generalizing, but they come to the conversation and thinking that they're having the same conversation, but that they're not. And so kind of her stance would be that men are concerned about justice and equality and women are concerned about 
maintaining the connections between familiar lines and that they don't see things as much as a hierarchy, as much as a web, you know, that we're all interconnected. And so, and again, um, what we're pointing out is that there's strengths to both, but because um, a person, let's say it doesn't have to be a woman, but because a woman cares about maintaining that connection in some ways she is at a disadvantage because she's going to care more about what everybody else is saying, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. And so right. how do we, how do we kind of negotiate conversations in a way that doesn't undermine that strength? Because uh-huh. that can, that can actually end up hurting us. I think as women, when we're caring so much about connection, when others maybe don't as much. Yeah. Well, I think it, so the strength is of being aware of and attuned to the, to the needs of the whole. I remember my husband sitting around the table and he was like, it's just amazing that your mother can be eating her meal and can realize that I didn't get any potatoes and ask me while she's, you know, (laughs) getting something for someone else if I would like some potatoes. She's like, just like her ability to keep track of all that is like amazing to him, you know. (laughs) And he's sincere. I mean, just because his ability to kind of track all that information is is not as, as good as hers. So, you know, that capacity is a very important one. When it becomes a liability is when you're so sensitized to how other people feel that it debilitates you from actually doing the what is actually most valuable for the group as a whole. When you're so sensitized to people's feelings that you can't go and say or do the difficult thing that is still more important and better for the, for the welfare of the group. So it's not because women are so attuned to the group that they're doing great things for the group, they're just the ones that suffer. They're often not doing great things for the group either. You know, for example, if someone's married, if a woman's married to a man who can be kind of dominant, domineering, and sometimes hostile towards his children, but she's intimidated and doesn't stand up for the kids, well, she's maybe keeping the peace, she's maybe trying to keep the connections alive, but she's not actually doing goodness because she's trying to keep the conflict low and and manage her own Uh, self-regulation basically by not doing the right thing doing the right thing is to stand up in some way or another and say this isn't okay right yeah so it's both of the both to use Gilligan's frame the traditionally male and female perspectives have their strengths and liabilities right well I'm wondering though I mean I think a lot of women you know especially if they're starting to go through this transition um, they kind of entered their relationships. It doesn't, you know, whether it's marriage, kids, even religious institutions, communities, with sort of an unwritten contract that they would be the selfless one. And uh-huh. so now that maybe they're trying to develop or transition into this higher stage, um, how do they begin to renegotiate relationships? Because you're kind of breaking contract in a way. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, in all marriage, you always break contracts. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of implicit uh, contracts that are happening when you get married or you think are going to happen, and they never do. So um, basically, you, you re- renegotiate by standing up for what you believe really matters more, by daring to stand for what you believe is more important than just accommodation of your husband's desires and being willing to take responsibility for that position. And while you can't control what others will do ever, you can control always what you will do, always, right? 
even if you feel very pressured in the context of your marriage to accommodate or capitulate to your spouse, you are and always will be responsible for what you choose. And so the real question is the you know validation, approval, you know, the peace in the family is not as important as whether or not what you're standing for is right or optimal or fosters your development or the development of the group. And so while accommodation often stabilizes things, it doesn't usually foster development. Um, I'm not here on any level to say that accommodation isn't often good. In fact, people accommodate all the time in their relationships just intuitively, and it's a really important part of relationships. It's when it becomes a costly accommodation and a chronic accommodation in which you, you have to underfunction in order to sustain it, in which you have to suppress a part of your functioning in order to sustain it. Noble sacrifice is when you do something, you forsake something you want, and the whole group, including yourself, are better off for having forsaken it. Uh, costly, what I call in my classes, costly accommodation, or non-noble sacrifice, is basically you're accommodating in order to keep people happy with you, essentially, or to keep people from being upset with you, but you, the group doesn't grow or get challenged in important ways for having made the accommodation. And so, so I think the question is for, for myself, if I've asked myself is, does, does my doing this increase my self-respect? You know, it, do, do I feel that I have done the right thing? I, that's the only part I have control over. Um, if you complain and resent the way you're being pressured, but you do it anyway, that doesn't increase your self-respect. If you instead take an honest and well-thought-out position that you believe is fair and loving, um, then your confidence comes in standing for what is right, right? not for other people's validation, but it takes faith. It takes courage. It takes a willingness to tolerate the anxiety of standing up for something. Um, I don't know why my mind just went here, but I remember when I was um, in my junior year of high school, and I was on a foreign exchange trip to Germany. And so we were all matched with these um, German exchange students and their families. And the person that I was matched with was very, very shy, quite awkward, um, hardly ever spoke to me. And then we would all grow out as a group with other, I'm sorry, other high school students and their host family's child, you know, the, their peer. So anyway, my host peer, I guess I should call her, was that the, the boys in the group would tease her behind her back. And I was quite shy and awkward in high school, and I didn't like the idea of standing up to bullies. <laughs> and yet, in the course of this week or 10 days, they just kept, you know, saying mean things behind her back and, you know, just doing rude things to her all the time. And it was just driving me crazy inside, but I was so terrified to stand up to these guys that were much cooler than me, who probably saw me as being next in line, frankly. And and I just remember sitting on this bus, and she was sitting next to me, and I knew behind the in the seat that they were making this sort of shooting noise towards her. And I didn't know if she knew it or not, but I assumed that she probably did. 
and it was just like boiling in me and suddenly like the validation no longer mattered I like it felt more important to do what I believed was right than to have these people think well of me because I didn't think very well of them actually <laughs> and so I just stood up I turned around and I just said to them stop it and they did <laughs> and I turned back around and I sat down and I just I had been terrified to stand up, really, because I was a nice, accommodating girl. <laughs> but I just suddenly realized, like, I was true to myself, and I feel so good that I did that. And it it's like I became a little stronger and a little less dependent on other val people's validation. And that is right there, in a nutshell, the moment-to-moment -moment of self-development, is that you dare to kind of be true to what you really think is right, even when you're afraid, even when you're not sure you'll get other people's validation, even if you think you'll be um, criticized, but you do what you really think is right. And it doesn't always have to be that noble, right, or that, you know, momentous. Sometimes it's just having the courage to define what matters to you or to pursue something that matters to you. Um, but that's where you develop a solid sense of self is when you start being truer to that internal compass, even in the face of invalidation. A lot of psychological theory is that we develop a self through validation. And there's truth in that, especially as children. But as adults, it's often in the face of invalidation that you forge a sense of self. When you stand for what you really think is the most right thing, even when others won't applaud you for it. Yeah, and I love how you use the, the word faith in there. That is such uh -huh. an awesome framing of the uh -huh. word faith and um, yes. just super powerful. I love it. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but at least in our society, strong selfhood is linked to having economic power. And one, do you believe that, do you agree with that, I guess, to start? And Yeah, I mean, I think Yes, it's linked, but it's not equivalent for sure. So, um, you know, there's lots of people with economic power that are very limited self-development, and there's people with less economic power that are very developed. So I, I don't know that I would necessarily link it in any um, singular way, but I would say that selfhood is strongly connected to a sense of efficacy, or that is the ability to affect realities in one's life that matter. And I do think that having economic power is a part of that, of course. Otherwise, you're consigned to a kind of forced dependency, which isn't, isn't always bad. And, and having economic power isn't just about, you know, somebody makes the money. And, you know, when you think about the ways that families have functioned through time, women have always been a part of the economic force in terms of what they created at home, not just in nurturing, but also in terms of preparing the meals and canning the food and growing the food and, you know, being able to, but, but being able to sustain yourself, I do think is important for one's development and particularly for one's position in a relationship, whether or not you feel like you're in a forced dependency, because if you feel like you're in a forced dependency, I think it does undermine your willingness to pressure realities that may need to be pressured in a marriage. Okay. Um, have you seen this kind of economic power distributed effectively between couples in your practice? And I guess kind of a follow-up question to that would be, 
you know, there are plenty of women that I know that, you know, have no desire to work professionally and can they have or possess economic power even if they work at home um, without it becoming a sort of dependency? Well, I would, it's such a hard question because there's so many different elements that play a role in it. I mean, to the question of like, what is the kind of economic distribution in my the couples I see, I see mostly LDS couples, and I would say most probably fit the traditional frame of the man being the primary breadwinner and the woman either not working or working part-time or working in, you know, contributing less to the sort of household um, income. But I do think that it works for many people very quite fine, actually, and especially if you're with someone who's trustworthy, like a husband who's trustworthy, it can be a very reasonable distribution of realities, um, of, of how you contribute to raising a family, because, again, both things really matter. The nurturing of the group. You know, everybody needs a, a wife. Anybody who works needs a wife in a traditional sense. And what I mean is you need someone who's sort of shoring up those those elements. Um, so I think when the person who's the provider is dependable, it can work very well, especially when that's not seen as a superior role by either party. Um, that said, it's, we also have a structural problem in our society that women, anybody that chooses to stay home does economically disadvantage themselves. So even if they're with a person who's 100% trustworthy and he dies, um, you have put yourself in a much more vulnerable position if you haven't made sure that either through life insurance or through, you know, like a backup plan of some kind that you can sustain yourself. So because our society basically favors the economic side of things in terms of how it's structured um, and governmentally and so on, women are often at a disadvantage if they thought they were with someone who was trustworthy who in fact wasn't. And so it is risky. I, I heard a statistic in Relief Society a couple of years ago that um, upwards of 70% of LDS women will at some point be the primary providers in their household, which if that's true, and I believe it is, you know, it's, it's makes no sense to not have some real economic power in the world because otherwise it's, it's challenging. I'll say one other thing is that in terms of marriage and divorce statistics, the women who divorce the least frequently are the most educated group. So, um, and the ones that marry the latest. Um, so that would be somewhat counterintuitive because I think sometimes people have believed, well, if you could leave, uh, people might leave more easily where if they kind of have to stay in the marriage, they, um, you know, then the marriage stays together because she has no good choices. But it looks like when people actually recognize that they have real choices, it's easier, I think, to have a relationship of respect. Um, now, all that said, I would also say I think it also can work very well in families to have one person be the primary caregiver and one person be the provider. And I know in my own marriage, I did that for a period of seven years where I chose to not work, chose to be home. My husband was the primary provider. And um, it was really the right thing for our family. It was really what I wanted to do over other options. And there was no sense whatsoever that 
one was more powerful or mattered more than the other, <laughs> right? And so, and some people may choose to do that for the long term. And I think it's a real service to be able to be at home and to be able to provide that for your family and for your grandkids and for other people in society because you're not working that you can contribute more to your community and to your ward and so on. And it's, it's, it's an essential part of society. I think, unfortunately, it does make women more vulnerable, which doesn't mean that they will suffer for it. It just, if you think you're with someone who's trustworthy and he isn't, then you do suffer more. So um, I wish we had a society that overtly valued that element more because I think we'd all be better off for it. But the sense of efficacy, I think, is the part that I think matters. And being knowing that you can sustain yourself if you must, I think, matters. And how you will do that, there's probably many ways uh, other than having a career. Right. And what you're kind of saying as well is that it's the relationship that, that really does matter. I mean, as far as whether it's healthy or not, or whether it works or not, because... It's not necessarily what roles each partner's playing, it's how they're playing them. Right, that's right. And the thing is, you can't always know. Like, you know, I have clients who did what they believed they were taught to do in their young women's program and what their mother wanted from them, which is to forsake a career and to have children, and they did. And then they find out their husband's cheating on them. And they have many kids, they have no education or a very limited one, and they have their they're kind of toast. I mean, they don't, and, and they're angry and resentful because here they did what they thought they were supposed to do. And they really are in a very vulnerable position where they don't have real choices or good choices. And, and it's hard, you know, one way I, you know, think of it is that, you know, for example, when I chose not to work and I didn't know how long I wasn't going to work. I had a child who was diagnosed with as being on the autism spectrum and I had a new baby and I, I didn't know. I didn't know if I would ever actually open a counseling practice. I just, um, I knew two things. I knew that being at home felt right for me to do in terms of what I wanted to provide for my children. And I also could track in my husband that he was worthy of my dependency on him. That, that you know, at that time I knew that he was being responsible in that position. And I also knew that if I had to, because he were to betray that or he were to die or something that I could take care of myself if I had to. And I think that's just an important framework, which is I'm not going to go blind to who you are and just hope you take care of me. There can be very wise and conscious choice to be in a more dependent role because you have assessed that it's wise to do it. It's the right thing to do. But I think also what you're saying is that, you know, with these other women you've cited that kind of just followed the script and then it didn't go according to plan that maybe that self had hadn't been completely developed because I think the fact is sometimes we make decisions um even from a great place and they turn out to be wrong but the one thing that you can always go back to in that situation is I made the best decision. I owned That's that right. decision. And so then it kind of takes that sting away, even though That's it right. stinks, you know, but, yes. but it, it, right. you, you feel like it's okay because, uh, you know, I asserted a choice and it didn't work out, but it's a whole other thing. If you did what you were supposed to do, but you weren't That's completely right. on board with it. I just think, That's right. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right because I think part of this, you know, this particular client, part of the sting of that reality is that, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. I thought that what I was going to be promised was blessings and security, and kind of, you know, that that God and the church and my family was going to kind of back me up for doing what I should do. And so it's this like I will exchange my self development for your validation and you know you giving me a life. And when that doesn't happen, it's it's the despair of feeling like you know I thought that I was entering into a contract that was going to take care of me and it didn't. And it's sort of the acknowledgement of the self betrayal. I mean, one is inducted into a kind of self betrayal in that, but also the acknowledgement that I didn't really take responsibility for myself in the decision making, even if I had made the exact same decisions. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, I think where it just gets so tricky and why I think, again, that selfhood or transitioning into that third stage is just so crucial because when you're, when you don't have that, it's just a horrible place to be. I think you just, I don't know, at least it's been for me, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, so one other element, and this is something that I love when you talk about, so I'm just going to kind of insert in here, but um, you know, women's selfhood and values typically linked in at least patriarchal societies to her sexuality. And of course we, we know that that's problematic, problematic, but are there ways that sexuality can actually contribute to developing selfhood in positive ways? Yes. Big time. <laughs> so <laughs> Take your classes, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think sexuality is a very important part of human development and self-development and, um, because sexuality is a fundamental part of being human. And I think if we as women in particular shut it down for fear of not being desirable, right? Again, sort of that, that, that traditional narrative that, that women are most desirable when they're not sexual, right? Uh, when, when they are there, for, they're objects of men's desire, but they themselves aren't, you know, they're pure and virginal and so on. And so many women will systematically shut down their sexuality in order to get that validation from others. But again, if you're going to disconnect from your own sexuality and your own sexual development, that's another version of participating in your underdevelopment and not having a whole self. And, you know, I believe we have a theology that doesn't support that choice. I mean, in the sense that we have parents in heaven who are embodied and have given us a body and given us sexuality and deemed them as good and, and I think, you know, that as women laying claim to our body and embracing it and appreciating it and laying claim to your sensuality and your eroticism is really fundamental to knowing yourself and caring for yourself and respecting yourself. And, of course, that doesn't excuse you from using your sexuality for good in the world, meaning it's not an indulgent kind of self-embracing. Um, it doesn't mean you get to indulge any sexual feelings no matter what, but you're taking ownership of your body and your sexuality in a way that shores up your strength and your wisdom and your self, self knowledge and self care. And I think it's very, very important, not just in being a solid and a whole person, but in being able to really love and care for another person through your sexuality. 
right? That if you're going to really be in an intimate relationship, you, you need to have a good relationship to your sexuality first, a solid embracing of this part of yourself that then in sharing yourself with a beloved other, you share your sexuality also. And so, again, it's that same duality of it's, it's both being true to oneself as well as being true to our most important commitments. Yeah. So as we've been going through this conversation, in the back of my mind, I just keep thinking there have got to be women who are listening right now and thinking to themselves, I don't even know who I am. I don't know where I would start. I don't have a voice to share. And I certainly have had no practice in, in learning this and, or no training, really. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to them for a moment and just share some insights about where to begin. Yeah, I mean... I think that um, part of the reason that you don't know what you want or you don't know, you feel like you have no voice to, to even share with others is because, first of all, that the focus hasn't been on what you want, right? So many of us have been so fixated on what others want from us and trying to accommodate those desires that we really haven't dared to take a look at and acknowledge how our desires are interweaving into all of that and to start taking responsibility for those desires. That doesn't mean we go out and just indulge them no matter what. It means being willing to kind of own the desire and figure out what, what is the right thing to do in the face of those desires. So it's, it's, it's first about focus and see, whenever, whenever I, feel resentment myself, then I would say to my, I'll say to myself, okay, what is the thing that I am not taking responsibility for in myself? Resentment is, is a good and important marker for what is the thing that I want someone else to do or take care of that I'm not really willing to stand up for or take responsibility for. Um, I think the other thing is that often if we have been in of the role of an accommodator in a kind of chronic sense, is that we also haven't developed much of a voice because we've just been in response to other people's desires. And so part of forging selfhood is to be able to assert our desires in the world, to pursue the things that matter to us, to pursue things that we believe are important. That is part of developing a voice. It's part of developing a point of view. It's part of developing a moral position is to start to, to, to dare to assert what you believe is right, even if you're wrong. And I promise you will be wrong. <laughs> we are all wrong. And that's why we have the atonement and repentance and so on. Not, not in this like, oh, it's so horrible, I was wrong. It's like you have to be wrong in order to develop. You have to make mistakes in order to develop. That's why we have the atonement. That is, it's just a fundamental part of human development. And... Um, rather than this idea that somehow we're harming Christ every time we make a mistake, it's just an awful frame. <laughs> you don't want to go out and be indulgent and harmful, of course, but the process of developing and forging a sense of self is a very, it's a process of, of imperfection. It's just like learning to play the violin. No one's going to expect you to pick up the violin and play it beautifully. You just have to start doing things imperfectly and being willing to tolerate the anxiety and the discomfort that comes with that if you're going to start to be able to play a piece and then you start to play a more complex piece and then you start developing new technique. You have to go through the 
process of constantly making mistakes. Yeah, and I want to maybe add to that for at least for my personal experience that journal writing for me was like a huge thing because it allowed me to practice some of these things without feeling like I was on stage. And I, um, I'm just, you know, more introverted. And so I, I have, you know, different anxieties about just voicing myself. And so it was a great way for me to just start small. And, yeah. and it was kind of a way for every, I tried to do it religiously every day. And I would just be like, you know, this is my way of saying that I care about what I have to say. And with that framework, it, of course, allowed me to actually do it. But then it gave me the practice um, kind of, you know, later on when I actually had to use my voice, my actual voice. I had some thoughts already. So I guess I would just insert. Well, I think that's a great idea, actually. And when I was um, in my late adolescence, early 20s, I, um, you know, again, I, I felt like an internal pressure to to basically assert who I wanted to be, even though I felt very far from being that person. And it was a very, um, you know, basically I wrote out who I wanted to be. And, you know, I defined who that person was, that I was someone that had a strong sense of self, that, you know, I cared about other people, that I was willing to reach out and, and, foster goodness in other people, but I, but I also defined a person who was also attentive to herself. So I just drew this whole picture that felt very, very different from the person that I believed that I was, or that I in fact was, I wasn't that person yet. And, and then I would read it because it was, it was just a goal, I guess. But even wanting to be that person was self-definition in that was self-development in process. That was like defining a self in the world. And so I would go and I would read that every morning and every night, and I did it over a period of four or five years as a way of, like, then going and, try and practicing in my mind's eye being that person or being more extroverted or daring to speak to people that I might otherwise not. And it was a way of creating a space to define my desires without having to be on stage and holding it in my heart and holding it with God and, you know, having God sort of um, feeling that God saw that capacity within me and then daring to sort of try it on little by little and failing a lot at it for a long time. <laughs> and But slowly developing more and more into the person that I wanted to be. That is so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm probably going to have to work on that one too. That's a great tip. <laughs> Um, now this might be a little redundant because we just talked about, you know, people that are struggling in this regard, but I just, you know, I have an 11 year old daughter and so I'm always thinking about how can I help her in these sorts of ways, um, and teach her the importance of developing selfhood, but then of course, you know, caring for the needs of the community. And I guess part of this that, that I find uh, challenging, I guess, is that according to these uh, moral development theories, it's almost like we go through these different stages. Uh -huh. And I want my daughter to skip that middle stage, and she can't. <laughs> so, um, so I, I just, I guess, I'm kind of always in this flux of like, okay, how do I acknowledge that stage that she's in or starting to go into, 
but also leave some breadcrumbs out of it. Yeah. I actually don't mind that middle stage because I like that good girl, good boy stage. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want her to get stuck, you know. (laughs) No, I know. I'm kind of teasing, but... Um, Yeah, I think that... (laughs) You're great. Cut that part out. Um, I think that... First of all, I think one of the ways to do it is to just model the bridging of that tension between caring for yourself and caring for the group and to model wisdom in doing that. That's really the best way because the more that your child tracks that mom's not going to neglect herself, but she's not going to neglect me either. And sometimes that means, you know, that sometimes it means saying no to your daughter and sometimes it means saying no to yourself. Right. So it means like, okay, like my daughter came in today when I was working uh, on something and she just started asking me questions, you know, and she wanted to talk to me. And so I could go into that, like feeling guilty and then, but feeling a little irritated, you know, I could do that. But a healthier response is to say, you know, to basically ask her to, um, recognize a boundary like okay I don't you know I'm in the middle of something I'm going to set the timer and you you know in five minutes when that goes off then then let's go in and get a snack and I'll talk to you so that it's a way of saying like you matter and I matter right so I'm not going to just feel guilty and sort of you know indulge whatever you want or resent when you want things from me Uh, but I'm also going to use prudence in deciding when do I attend to when does mom attend to what she needs to do and when does she attend to me? But it's not at my daughter's expense to accommodate her mother. Uh, and it also is that she gets to matter as well. So it's just modeling the capacity to do that. That's a big deal. And, you know, the kind of resentful accommodation and the kind of uh, pressuring to comply and to make mom happy, that kind of thing, that's what's going to get somebody stuck. That's what's going to get a child stuck is when they feel like they can't belong to themselves without disappointing their parents or that mom can't belong to herself without feeling guilty and anxious. That's what's going to get a child stuck. Okay. Yeah, that's... That's good. It's going to, I think for a lot of us, it just takes practice because we're used to that narrative of, you know, I want to be a good mom and good mom means indulging every whim and, you know, but then (laughs) you can't stand your kids. So that's, that stinks. It ruins all relationships there. Right. And then of course you just say, what's good about that? How is it a good mom to indulge every pressure a child puts on his mother? Right. Um, you know, how is it a good thing to resent your kids because you can't hold a boundary with them? Yeah. There's nothing good about it. So we often want to call good what is um, a, just sort of a reactive, self-neglecting um, position. So kind of what you're saying is, is it's immature because yeah. you're not you're not growing in a way that allows you to engage more in a real way. I guess. Right. And you're not, 
Exactly. And you're also not challenging your children to do that. Like asking my daughter to wait for five minutes is good for her and me. Yeah. I mean, it's not that she has to wait every single time, but because I was finishing some things I had my head in, it was the right thing to get it done so that I could peacefully move on, transition out of work and into caring for the family. And that was totally good, you know, fine for her to see and to accommodate me on that level. So it is good for her (laughs) and me. But it sounds like... It sounds like, though, that you also have that relationship of trust already, so that if you say, you know, it's five minutes, that she knows, you know, maybe it might be six, but it's going to be roughly five to six minutes, where sometimes I think we get in this position or habit of, of, uh, you know, we finally will stand up for ourselves, but we kind of go to the other extreme, and then our kids, you know, know that if mom says five minutes, that she's checked out, you know? And That's so, right. I don't know, it seems like there's that, kind no, of... No, exactly. So, and that is a risk sometimes of, of thinking, okay, well, now I'm standing up for myself. And so, you know, so now finally I'm going to do what I want, but it's a kind of defensive, almost like a rebellious position. It's still not really a responsible position. Yeah. And again, it's taking responsibility for our desires in a context of responsibility to others. So, mm-hmm. it's... It's navigating those with wisdom, always. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of self-reflection yes. <laughs> is involved. Yes. And, and maybe yeah. even asking for, you know, feedback from others, too. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, now, one thing, and this is, I think, my last question. We've gone way over. I apologize. Okay. Um, but... Um, sometimes I hear, you know, I, I grew up in Japan, for example, and so there, you know, they really don't prioritize the individual hardly at all. Mm-hmm. And so kind of in America, you know, Americans get criticized a lot because we care so much about that individual mm-hmm. eye, kind of the Western mm-hmm. eye. And so do you think um, that we that there's a possibility that we're over-teaching Uh This, um, or prioritizing this individual Uh too much? And if so, how do we rectify that? Right, exactly. So, I mean, it's not about rugged individualism. This is not like the John Wayne view of relationships where, you know, you're just attending to your desires and screw what everybody else wants from you. You know, we women have put up with this for too long. It is not that. Okay. It's, It's not a defensive selfishness. So, um, and, and again, you know, many people use their resentment about their obligations to family to justify self-indulgence. And I can't emphasize enough that that's not what I'm saying. Um, it's that it, it's really about, you know, yeah, there's different cultural emphases and, you know, and we can be too individualistic and we can sort of think that the needs and the, the desires of the individual trump and they shouldn't. It's just that. They both matter. Your family and loved ones matter very much, and so do you. And you, it's about holding that tension the, between those two pressures and, again, asserting wisdom within it. And so it isn't just about, you know, I'm taking a stand and I don't care what you think. It isn't that. It's like, you know, even when I'm speaking about the things that I believe or feel I'm always holding the context of the group in my heart and thinking about, you know, what is productive to say, 
what can be hearable by others. Um, and some people might say, well, that's not really being true to yourself. That's not having integrity. And I'd say, no, I think it's exactly my notion of integrity, which is I have an obligation to be true to myself, and I also have an obligation to the group and to find a way to craft a, 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 something truthful and responsible between those two realities is really the work of of being of humankind of moral development yeah so that is awesome i love it absolutely love it and it resonates so much with me and of course my own journey um do you have any final thoughts i like i said we've gone way over and uh, i'd love to get any final thoughts from you other than um, just that I res- maybe just that I respect the challenge of that this process and to be merciful with ourselves as we're trying to sort through it because we've been given there's a lot of competing pressures and a lot of cultural messages some of which have been helpful and some of which are less helpful and so this process of discerning and asserting takes courage, it takes faith, and it is very much a process. And, you know, and we will fail the whole way through, <laughs> which is not <laughs> to be pessimistic. It's not a vote of non-confidence. It's just a way of saying that's, that's the human experience and to be compassionate with ourselves as we do it, you know, to just kind of hold our intentions and our humanity at the same time. So, and to tolerate the process of, of developing ourselves. So. Wow. This has been so awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. This is, yeah. I know that, um, a lot of listeners will really, really be grateful for the insights that you've shared. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about female sexuality and desire, visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website today and look for the Women's Sexuality and Desire course under the Online Courses tab. You can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website at www.finlayson-fife.com. We are going to end today's episode with a short review of the Women's Sexuality and Desire course. Quote, I absolutely loved this course. It was truly amazing. What you taught me completely opened up my view of my sexuality and has been so liberating. I have been more relaxed and present when I'm with my husband. I have a lot to learn still, but I feel possibilities in a way I never have before. Thank you for teaching this class. End quote. Thanks for being here and thank you for listening. And in honor of the Christmas season, Dr. Finlayson Fife is having a holiday sale where you can take 20% off all of her online courses and get additional discounts if you buy more than one course. Act now before the sale ends.